Everyone, Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. أعوذ بالله السميع من الشيطان الرجيم بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله رب العالمين والعدوان إلا على الظالمين والعاقبة للمتقين اللهم صل وسلم وبارك على عبدك ورسولك محمد صلى الله عليه وسلم وعلى آله وصحبه وسلم تسليما كثيرا الحمد لله رب العالمين we are finally at the most asked about companion since we have started the series which is خالد بن الوليد رضي الله تعالى عنه and as I've mentioned to you uh, the reason why it took 120-something episodes to get to Khalid radiallahu anhu is because we were trying to cover the companions that embraced Islam in terms of their order. And obviously Khalid ibn al-Walid radiallahu ta'ala anhu embraces Islam uh, much later. So I wanted to inshallah ta'ala begin with the significance of Khalid just in the title that al-Imam al-Dhahabi rahimahullah ta'ala gives him. He is Khalid ibn al-Walid ibn al-Mughira ibn Abdullah ibn Umar Al-Makhzumi, Sayfullahi Ta'ala, Wafaris al-Islam. Imam al-Dhahabi rahimahullah ta'ala calls him the sword of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, the hero of Islam. Al-Imam al-Amir al-Kabir, Qaid al-Mujahideen, Abu Sulaiman, the great Imam, the great general of the Mujahideen, the great leader. Abu Sulaiman al-Qurashi al-Makhzumi al-Makki. He is, his nickname or his kunya is Abu Sulaiman radiallahu ta'ala anhu from Quraysh, from Banu Makhzum, from Mecca. Wabnu ukhti umm al-Mu'mineen Maymuna bint al-Harith and he is the son of, uh, or he is the, the uh, nephew, the maternal nephew of the mother of the believers, Maymuna bint al-Harith radiallahu ta'ala anha, the wife of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam. And so we have here a man who is extremely special, who is extremely beloved to the Muslims, who many of you have been named after, or who you have named your children after, and for good reason, and who is without any dispute the greatest general in the history of Islam after the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam who remarkably only lived a few years after the Prophet ﷺ. But the man who we know as being responsible for bringing the two greatest empires in the world to their knees within one year, and dying only a few years after the Messenger ﷺ. Now Khalid ﷺ is going to take uh, at least two classes. So we're not going to be able to cover him all in one class. What I wanted to do tonight, inshaAllah Ta'ala, is focus on the background up until the point of his becoming the sword of Allah, Sayfullah. And then we'll take another lesson, inshaAllah ta'ala, to talk about his contributions and his legacy in that capacity. And we basically have to go back to his tribe, we have to go back to his parents, and there is lengthy discourse about his tribe and his parents before we get into who he is, radiallahu ta'ala anhu. And we start with the tribes. Khalid radiallahu ta'ala anhu is from the tribe of Banu Makhzum. Banu Makhzum is the greatest competitor of Banu Hashim. So when we talk about Banu Hashim and their generosity and what they were known for with the pilgrims, with those that were within Mecca and those that would come to Mecca for whatever reason, for the pilgrimage, it is Banu Hashim and Banu Makhzum that are competing in generosity it is Banu Hashim and Banu Makhzum that are looked at as rival tribes, as well as Banu Abdiddar, which is the parent tribe of Banu Umayyah. So you've really got three major tribes that are competing for the leadership of Quraysh and the leadership of Mecca. 
And of course, the most famous man from Banu Makhzum is none other than Abu Jahl, the cousin, the first cousin of Khalid anhu. And we know that Abu Jahl, his entire holdup with the Prophet was simply that he is Hashimi. He's not one of us. We cannot concede a prophet to this tribe or else Banu Makhzum will forever be less than Banu Hashim if we acknowledge that they have a prophet of Allah amongst them. So basically, he's coming out of this tribe of Makhzum, which was very hostile to the Prophet ﷺ and hostile to Banu Hashim. Competitors in generosity, competitors in status, competitors in power. And his father happens to be the chief of that tribe. So Al-Walid ibn al-Mughira is the chief of Banu Makhzum. He is the wealthiest man in Mecca. He is one of the most eloquent men in Mecca. He is a person who Quraysh will default to in terms of his opinion. He's the oldest of the chiefs of Quraysh. Okay, so he's also the oldest one amongst them. The oldest one, the richest one, the one that people will defer to in terms of opinion, and someone that the Prophet really wanted to become Muslim. Really wanted to become Muslim. Rasulullah would direct many of his efforts towards this man becoming Muslim because if this man becomes Muslim, much of the heartache, much of the trouble of Mecca would not happen. And of course, Allah's qadr was that the Prophet had a much longer route with his mission that involves the story of Medina, the story of the Ansar, and the story of coming back to uh, Mecca victorious. So let's talk about his father uh, for a moment. And his father, I'm just going to give you one family connection through his father, all right? Al-Walid ibn al-Mughira is the brother of Hisham ibn al-Mughira. Hisham ibn al-Mughira is the father of Abu Jahl. So if you got Abu Jahl, Amr ibn Hisham is his real name, Abu Jahl and Khalid, their fathers are first cousins, right? And so this affair of Banu Makhzum is a serious one when the Prophet ﷺ announces his prophethood. So let's talk about the father for a moment, Al-Walid for a moment. Al-Walid, as we said, is the wealthiest man in Mecca, extremely generous, but for all the wrong reasons. And this is something, subhanAllah, that's important to speak about when we talk about ulterior motives of people. If you met Al-Walid ibn al-Mughira, you'd say, MashaAllah, this man operates practically you know, every hotel in Mecca for the travelers. He literally had homes that were just for the guests and the visitors that would come through Mecca fully lit and people would be fully fed. He owned half of the real estate from Mecca, they said, all the way to Ta'if. Every other house was owned by Al-Walid ibn al-Mughira. His generosity to the pilgrims was exemplary. On top of that, he had the nickname of Wahid, of one, alone. Alone in what? And Allah is going to make a play on this nickname in the Qur'an. He was alone in what? Quraysh used to replace the cover, the kiswa of the Kaaba, once a year. The same way that they do today, but of course, for them it was idolatry, right? For them this was a part of their idolatry. They had, you know, this was the tourism business, right? So you got to replace the kiswa once a year. Every tribe would pitch in for the cost of the cover of the Kaaba one year, and then Al-Walid would take every other year all for himself. So you understand the concept? I'll pay for the whole thing one year, and then everybody else can get together collectively, and they can pay for it the next year. 
So it was almost showing off his wealth, that his wealth is the equivalent of everybody else in Mecca. That I'll take care of it one year, Wahida, alone, and you all take care of it the other year. And basically what ends up happening is that when Islam comes to the Prophet ﷺ, there is a strong deference immediately to what Walid is going to do. What is this man going to do? And the amount of Qur'an that is going to be revealed about him disparagingly because of his rejection of the Prophet ﷺ is significant. And so we start to go through this. When Islam comes to the Prophet ﷺ, he goes to Al-Walid and he asks him to sit with him and to listen to him recite the Qur'an. Al-Walid is a smart man. He sits with the Prophet ﷺ and he hears the Qur'an and he says, I am a poet and I know poetry, this is not poetry. I've never known you to lie, so you're not lying to me. He said, you don't have the looks of a kahin, a sorcerer. I don't see any hoops or claws around you or any type of sorcery going on with you. I know what sorcerers look like. He said, let me think about what you are saying to me. But along the way, he's putting some, some obstacles as well to the Prophet ﷺ. One of them is, I don't like the types of people that are starting to follow you, the poor and the disabled and, and the, uh, the, the people of low class, the slaves, and I don't like this initial batch of, of early Muslims. And so he is, according to many of the ulama, أَمَّا مَنْ إِسْتَغْنَى in Surah Abasa, the one who was too proud. فَأَنْتَ لَهُ تَصَدَّى Stop paying attention to that man. Pay attention instead to Abdullah ibn Umm Maktoum This man has a kibir problem, he has an arrogance problem. And so that's the first thing. He starts to kind of put a little bit of that. I don't like the type, the type of people that are around you. And the Prophet ﷺ is trying to accommodate as much as he can without forsaking the mission to try to talk to him one-on-one. -on -one. Al-Walid hears the Prophet ﷺ recite the Hawameen, the Hamims of the Qur'an, which Abdullah Mas'ud said are the gardens of the Qur'an. It was his favorite section of the Qur'an because it was early Mecca, beautiful, powerful, all about Iman, all about faith, all about the hereafter. Al-Walid is clearly moved by the Qur'an. He goes to his people and in private, what is Al-Walid saying? He's saying, I am hearing something so beautiful from this man. And he said, it is not the words of ins or jinn. It is not the words of a human being or the words of a devil. So he's clearly moved. Now as he's going to the Prophet a few times, and he's, he's listening to the Prophet Abu Jahl, who is his, how is he related to Al-Walid? I want to see if you guys caught at least that connection. He's his nephew, his nephew, right? Amr ibn Hisham. Abu Jahl's real name is Amr ibn Hisham ibn al-Mughira. So this is his uncle. Abu Jahl is a professional at obstructing people from embracing Islam. SubhanAllah, you think about why he has so much sin on his shoulders. He obstructs Abu Talib. He obstructs Al-Walid. He obstructs uh, Uqba bin Abi Mu'eed, he obstructs every single powerful person that could help the Prophet Abu Jahl basically customizes a way to stop that person from embracing Islam while also being the first person to insult the Prophet in public in, in a very particular way while also being the person to first kill people the mustad'afeen, the weak ones like Sumayyah for embracing Islam this is the Pharaoh of this Ummah for a reason 
So Abu Jahl, he has to come up with a way to approach his uncle. So he goes to him, and he's really sad. So Al-Walid says, Ma bika? What is it, Yabna Akhi? What is it, oh my nephew? Why are you so sad? He said, well, don't you hear the rumors about you? He said, what rumors? Well, they said that you keep going to the house of Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wasallam. And you know why they say you're going to the house of Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wasallam? Al-Walid said, why? He said, they say, they say, it's always they say, right? They say, Anta bakhil, you're a stingy person and you're going to Muhammad for his food and his money. You see, he's a, he's a rich, proud man, right? So the way to really break him and get, get to his mind, play with his mind a bit, is to say, you're financially corrupted. You're going to him because you need his money. You, you think that there's some financial gain to gain out of this new religion. So Al-Walid, he stands up, he says, Are they really saying that about me? He said, that's what they're saying about you. And then he insults the Prophet ﷺ. He says, this man can't even feed himself. Why would I go to him for food? Right? He starts talking about his money and starts talking about his power. So Abu Jahl, he said, oh, so you're not going to him for money. Are you going to him because you follow him now? You follow his religion now? Al-Walid says, no way. No, I don't follow his religion. I was just listening to him. I was hearing what he has to say. So Abu Jahl wanted to get Al-Walid to this point where Al-Walid will say, so what should I do? Like, how do I dispel the rumors? And Abu Jahl says that your qawm, your people, will not be satisfied until you say about Muhammad وسلم, what we say about him. تقول ما نقول. You have to say about him what we say. He said, well, what are you all saying? He said, كذاب, ساحر, majnoon, started to throw out all the insults about the Prophet He's a liar, he's a poet, he's a magician, he's a sorcerer. Al-Walid says, I know a liar and he's not a liar. I know a poet and he's not a poet. I know the sorcerers and he's not a sorcerer. And so Abu Jahl says to him, Ya Al-Walid, O Walid, Anta kabiru qawmuk. Hasn't it occurred to you? He's, he's going back to play on his pride. You are the leader of your people. You're the great one of your people. How come prophethood came to him and not you? Another verse in Surah Zukhruf where Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, they said, how come the Qur'an did not come to one of the two great men of the two great towns? The two great men are Al-Walid ibn Mughira and Urwa ibn Mas'ud al-Thaqafi in Ta'if. So basically, why is it that it's not coming to one of these two people? Why is it coming to a, a lowlier person in wealth and status than Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam? Why is it coming to him? Why not you? So he basically says, you know, listen, let's, let's sort of talk about this, right? Let's go and let's, let's gather everyone together and let's talk about a plan to foil the Prophet Wasallam's da'wah. He said, I've heard him. It's a powerful message that he has. So Abu Jahl goes and he calls this assembly. Al-Walid is there. Al-Walid starts to play through the different scenarios of what will work to delegitimize the Prophet So he goes through it, he says, listen, no one's ever going to believe the man's a liar. Prophet has never told a lie in his life. As-Sadiq Al-Ameen Which by the way, shows you the importance of having the moral high ground with what you preach. He doesn't lie. 
He's, uh, we know poetry. What he has is not poetry. This is too powerful to be poetry. We are the poets of the world. He's not a sorcerer. No one's going to believe because a kahan looks a little weird and you know, sorcerers kind of have, have, have a vibe to them. So Al-Walid, as he's walking around and pacing, and I want you to imagine, visualize, this is the father of Khalid radiallahu ta'ala anhu, comes back and he says, إِنَّهُ سِحْرٌ يُؤْثَرُ You know what it is? It's a magician, or he's got some sort of magic that deludes people, it overcomes people. قَوْلٌ بَشَرٌ But at the end of the day, it's the word of a man. Look at Abu Jahl. Abu Jahl says, is that what we're saying? He says, because I want to go tell everyone that Al-Walid says, Sihrun yu'thar. All this is, is magic that overcomes people. You see, Sihr is different from sorcery in a way, right? Sihr can come through different practices and different ways, and it's less obvious than a, than a, than a, a sorcerer or a soothsayer that people go to. So Al-Walid says, that's what we're going with. At that point, Abu Jahl goes out and he says that all it is is Sihrun yu'thar. All this is, is magic that overcomes people. And what ends up happening is that that basically becomes the way by which they delegitimize the Prophet Now listen to what Allah reveals, because it basically comes down as a play-by-play of what Al-Walid was doing in Surah Al-Muddathir. Allah Subh'anaHu Wa Ta-A'la says, Now you know where the play is on the word. Allah says, leave me. To the one I created all by myself, Wahida. He and I will have, an, have our time. The Prophet ﷺ is being told by Allah that this person who Allah privileged in a singular way will be punished in a singular way. And I granted him abundance, mamduda, wealth that just extends and extends and extends and extends. And he had children always around him. Khalid has a lot of siblings. We're going to talk about them. We don't even know all of their names. The man had all sorts of siblings. And I made his life so easy for him. And then he wants me to increase him. Like he's not satisfied. Al-Walid is a rich man. He's the richest man in Mecca and he's not satisfied with his wealth. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, Verily, he was stubborn with our revelation. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, سَأُرْهِقُهُ سَعُودًا I am going to make his fate unbearable. إِنَّهُ فَكَّرَ وَقَدَّرَ Now this is where it gets really interesting. Allah basically gives us a preview of the room that Al-Walid was in when he was talking to everyone. He was walking around and he was thinking. And may he be perished. How evil was his estimation as he's walking around the room with the leaders of Quraysh and he is going through these things. And then he, he looked out and he thought to himself. And he, he frowned and then he, you know, he looked again. So he's basically talking about his pacing. Then he turned his back on the truth and he filled up his chest with all sorts of arrogance. فَقَالَ إِنْ هَذَا إِلَّا سِحْرٌ يُؤْثَرُ He said, all this is, is some magic from the old times that the Prophet ﷺ is polluting us with. إِنْ هَذَا إِلَّا قَوْلُ الْبَشَرِ All this is, is the word of man. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, Soon I will scorch him in the fire. And the verses continue about his punishment in hellfire. SubhanAllah, this was a play-by-play of what Al-Walid had done. And you have to think about the father of Khalid radiallahu ta'ala anhu Al-Walid. 
if he was someone who knew that this was coming from the heavens and now this is about him, this should shake him to the core. But his arrogance keeps overtaking him. And so he becomes even more insolent with the Prophet ﷺ, more committed to delegitimizing the Messenger ﷺ. Allah reveals another set of ayat about him. Surah Al-Qalam, Allah Subh'anaHu Wa says, وَلَا تُلْتَعْ كُلَّ حَلَّافٍ مَّهِينٍ Do not obey every vile, foul-mouthed person. هَمَّازٍ مَشَاءٍ بِنَمِينٍ Someone who uh, always creates scandal and passes on tales and, and falsehoods. This is a person that hinders all sorts of good, a sinful transgressor. And this is where I, I mentioned this in the khutbah some time ago, where Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala mentioned how arrogant he was and then said, and by the way, he's a, he's a child of zina. He's a child of adultery. Al-Walid goes to his mother. He says to his mother, he said, Allah just described me with nine traits. He said, the first eight I think are true. <laughs> like he, he has a little bit of self-awareness. You know what? I am arrogant. I am vile. I do talk down to people. I curse people. Uh, I have this pride in me. But he said, the only one that I can't accept is Zanim. I'm a child of adultery. How am I a child of adultery? So imagine Allah just revealed a play-by-play of what he was doing with the chiefs of Quraysh. And now Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala just said, and by the way, you're a child of adultery. And his mother tells him that your father is not actually your father. His mother tells him that basically your, your father was unable to, we were unable to conceive. And she says that she committed zina, that she committed adultery. Ibn Abbas narrates that it was Al-Akhnas ibn Shuraiq, one of the other core enemies of the Prophet So imagine the faliha, the humiliation that Allah just exposed these people with. That you're so proud about your tribe and you're so proud about how you boast over the people with your money and with your children. And this is who you really are, Al-Walid ibn Al-Walid. SubhanAllah, uh, after that, he continues and he becomes more aggressive with the Messenger and one of the things that he does, because he has a lot of children, one of his children was a man by the name of Ammara, Ammara ibn al-Walid. Uh, Ammara or Umara ibn al-Walid was basically one of his prized children. Super handsome, also very wealthy, very skilled. He had him trained in the arts. One of the things that he decides to offer, what they go to, to Abu Talib with to offer, he says to Abu Talib, you know what, how about this, let's make a deal. I'll give you Ammara, you give me Muhammad Let's trade kids. You can have Ammara, mashallah, prized child of Quraysh, everybody loves him, super good looking, uh, very good at trade. You know, let's make a trade. Abu Talib, he says to him, so you want to give me your son who I will feed and care for, and I give you my son so you can kill him? Absolutely not, right? Because they're still trying to operate at this point of the da'wah to try to crush the Prophet within their existing mechanisms, to not violate the system that gives them the power that they have. So let's make a trade. I'll give you my son, give me your son, and let me handle him, let me take care of him. So Al-Walid uh, basically fails at all of these different things. And he is someone who's going to die a very interesting death. So what ends up happening with him after some time, he was one day walking, and this is immediately after the Hijrah. So this is before Badr, immediately after the Hijrah. He doesn't die in Badr. 
If you actually look at the sources, you find that he dies a very interesting death. He was walking one day, and he was an older person at this point. And there was a man from Banu Khuza'a who used to make spears and arrows. He basically had this area where he would make his spears, he'd make his arrows, and he'd plant them in the ground, put them in piles and stuff like that. And Al-Walid accidentally stepped on one of them. And when he stepped on one of them, it caused a major split in his foot, major wounds. The wound gets infected, and basically that's what's going to cause his death. So this proud man, subhanAllah, look how Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala showed him his worth in such a way. So Al-Walid is on his deathbed, and you can see the, the, the mentality that Khalid anhu is going to grow up with with his, with his parents here, with his father here in particular. Al-Walid is on his deathbed, and he calls his children to him. And he says, I have three, three things to give you as wasiyah, as my will. So number one, uh, go and take my diyah, take my blood money, compensation from Banu Khuza'a. Now the reasoning is, is that if you don't, he actually likes Banu Khuza'a, he doesn't want an all-out war. If he dies as a result of this, some of his tribe might go wage war on Banu Khuza'a and these two tribes are going to fight each other. But he says, just go take my blood money from them, compensation from them. The man didn't mean to kill me, it was accidental. But then number two, he says, Banu Thaqif owes me a lot of money from riba, a lot of money from loans, a lot of interest in usury. Is he going to say forgive it? He said no. He said, go and take every single dirham that they owe me and bring it back to us. I don't want Banu Thaqif to have any of my money. SubhanAllah, he's still thinking about his money even as he's dying. Look how Allah describes the person so perfectly, like a mindset and attitude so perfectly. Number three, one of his daughters was divorced by a man by the name of Ibn Abi Uzayhir. Ibn Abi Uzayhir. And Ibn Abi Uzayhir divorced her and basically it was a nasty dispute. And Al-Walid did not like the way he divorced his daughter. So he basically said, I want revenge. I want revenge on Ibn Abi Uzayhir for what he did with my daughter. Go, go take revenge from him. These are his last three commandments or his last three wasaya on his deathbed. And subhanAllah, as a result of that, they, they, did, they took the blood money from Khuza'a. They also went to Thaqif and they tried to take all the money back and it ended up leading to all sorts of problems between Banu Thaqif and, and, and uh, Banu Makhzum and Abu Sufyan had to basically avert like a war because it led to all sorts of skirmishes and bad blood. And Hisham ibn Walid, so Walid had a son named Hisham, he has a brother named Hisham who's the father of Abu Jahl. One of his sons is named Al-Hisham ibn Walid. He went and he killed Ibn Abi Uzayhir, started basically a mini war between Banu Makhzum and his people, and Abu Sufyan had to go and clean that one up too. So it just shows you, subhanAllah, vindictive, foul, um, man who was deluded by his wealth, deluded by his tribe, and who Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala humiliated in so many different ways. And this is the man who Khalid radiallahu ta'ala anhu has as a father. Now with all that being said, Khalid radiallahu anhu is his youngest son. And at the end of the day, Khalid loves his father radiallahu ta'ala anhu. Right? Very generous with his family. I mean, his children did not have to lift a finger to work. He took care of everything, right? So he's very generous with his family. And Khalid radiallahu anhu loves his father. Um, but this is who his father actually is, and we'll come back to how that actually affects Khalid later on. As for the mother of Khalid, I'm going to put up this chart on the screen. Uh, all right, I want you all to memorize that in five seconds. All right, if you go back and you watch the lecture on Lubaba bint al-Harith, we actually did a whole lecture on this chart. Um, 
the mother of Abdullah bin Abbas, can you actually put it back up, inshallah ta'ala? The mother of Abdullah bin Abbas, radiallahu ta'ala anhu, uh, is Lubaba bint al-Harith al-Kubra, the older Lubaba. And you'll see all the way at the end of that chart, Lubaba al-Sughra. She's also Lubaba bint al-Harith. So there are two Lubaba bint al-Hariths, the big one and the small one. The mother of Khalid is the sister of the wife of the Prophet Maimuna later on. But what's significant about this chart, when you go back and you watch the lecture about Lubaba, is that all these people on here become Khalid's cousin through his mom. All right, so Abdullah bin Abbas is his cousin, and it goes on and on and on and on as to the types of relationships that are made through his mother. So Khalid is related to a lot of people. He's, he's literally like everybody's cousin. All right, just to give you a little bit of the mindset. He's also Umar ibn Khattab anhu's cousin through his father's side. Umar's mother, Hantama, is the first cousin of Khalid. So he's Khalid's second cousin through his father's side. Um, or, or Umar's mother is Khalid's uh, first cousin. So he's related to Umar anhu that way. The point is, is that Khalid anhu is someone who has a lot of blood ties in Quraysh. He's someone that has a lot of power. There really aren't many ways to disadvantage this man in a Qurashi society. And just for the sake of time, I won't go through all the implications of the mother since we've spoken about that already in a previous lecture. He has everything that you could possibly want in terms of tribal superiority, in terms of power, in terms of money. As for his siblings, they are too many to name. We're only going to talk about um, one or two of them in the, in, in the process of his story. So let's get to Khalid radiallahu ta'ala anhu himself. Khalid radiallahu ta'ala anhu is the last child or one of the last children of Al-Walid. The dynamic of that is that, you know, he has a lot of siblings that have already enjoyed the privilege of their father. He has a lot of first, second, and third cousins that are within that realm of power. And he is someone who is going to receive all of the riches and all of the luxury that comes with being the last child of the most powerful man, the richest man in Mecca. But when he was born, he was born very distinguished. He was huge physically. All right? So the description of Khalid ibn Urid radiallahu ta'ala anhu is that he looked like the twin of Umar ibn Khattab radiallahu ta'ala anhu. That's everything you need to know. Physically, in stature, extremely tall and extremely muscular. They said that there was not, uh, you know, a pinch on Khalid radiallahu anhu's body. It was all muscle, literally made of muscle, radiallahu ta'ala anhu. Extremely handsome, extremely poetic, and someone who is going to grow up loving war, loving the arts of war, loving the arts of battle. So him and Umar radiallahu anhu are cousins. They're basically known as the two strongest youth of Mecca. Khalid is, by the way, 20 years younger than the Prophet There's a significant age gap between him and the Prophet He's a young man. You know, he's not someone who's at that level of Abu Sufyan and Al-As and some of these older people when they're disputing with the Prophet He's a young person. And him and Umar radiallahu anhu are the two wrestlers, the two strongest men in Mecca. And they have a deep and profound relationship with one another and they're always in competition. So he's known for his skill in wrestling and he's known for his deep intelligence and particularly how he manages to master every single one of the arts of war. So his family sent him out to basically learn 
some of the harshness of the desert. SubhanAllah, one of the narrations about him in his biography is that he actually almost died as a child uh, from smallpox. But Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala spared him from that. And you can imagine that in that desert climate, a lot of children uh, would have died under those conditions. And he grows up only caring about war, only caring about the skills of war. Could not care less about buying and selling, could not care less about trade. And his father had all the money he needed anyway, so he really did not even have to exert himself in learning anything about being a merchant or anything about trade. He went to different parts of the world with his father, with his siblings, where they would take their caravans. But while he's traveling in different parts of the world, all he's doing is he's learning the stories, the heroic tales of the, of the Persian Empire and the Roman Empire, and all of these epic stories about some of the commanders and the great military minds of the world at the time. And they say about Khalid subhanAllah, and this is very significant, that most people can master one skill and they might be sufficient in the others. Khalid radiallahu anhu was the best in archery. Khalid was the best in spear throwing. Khalid was the best in horseback riding. Khalid was the best in camelback riding. Khalid was the best sword fighter. Khalid was the best strategist. He was absolutely unmatched in terms of his military genius, even as a kid. No one could come close to him, radiallahu ta'ala anhu. And he trains other young people in that. So his physical strength, his mind, everything surrounds the idea of battle. And that's all that he wants to do as he grows up. He is though, as we said, uniquely intelligent, deeply intelligent. And he knew poetry. And by the way, this was a, a, a description of Umar radiallahu ta'ala anhu as well. Umar radiallahu anhu was literate. He could read and write. And he knew poetry. Khalid radiallahu anhu knew poetry, was learning about history, was learning about the world around him. And all of that is significant to his development. Now, when does his interaction with the Prophet first take place? And this is where you start to see the family influence on a man. When the Battle of Badr happened, Khalid radiallahu anhu's father was already dead. So he's not like his cousins, Ikrama and, and uh, Abu Jahal, you know, who's of course also his cousin. He's not like Safwan ibn Umayyah. He's not like the others that are his age whose fathers went out in Badr and were killed. Khalid and his dad was already dead. And Badr tended to be the seniors of Quraysh going out to fight the, the Muslims who had fled to al Madina. Khalid anhu comes back to Mecca and he missed Badr because he was on a trade route. So when he comes back, he finds out that one of the people that has been taken as a captive by the Prophet ﷺ was his brother Al-Walid ibn Al-Walid. Al-Walid ibn Al-Walid radiallahu ta'ala anhu. We'll talk about later inshallah ta'ala. Al-Walid ibn Al-Walid. So Khalid says, well, I've got to go free my brother from captivity. Now the Prophet ﷺ, of course, took 70 captives from Badr and the Prophet ﷺ showed them mercy. He ransomed them in accordance with what they were able to do. So they went out to kill them. The Prophet ﷺ found a way out for the captives. And the Prophet ﷺ assigned different ways. And he said, Ahsinu, that show them ihsan, show them excellence. Do not chain them too hard. Feed them what you eat. Clothe them what you clothe yourselves. Don't be rough with your prisoners. The Prophet ﷺ understands that this is the first battle between the Muslims and those that persecuted them and caused them to flee. This could soften their hearts as well. So the Prophet ﷺ says, show them ihsan, show them excellence. 
And the Prophet sets ransoms in accordance with the capacity of the families of the prisoners. All right? So if this person comes from a tribe that the Prophet knows can only afford a few dirhams, the Prophet sets the ransom as that. And if they come from richer families, the Prophet sets the ransom a little bit higher. And if they have nothing to pay at all, what does the Prophet do? He says, let them teach people how to read. SubhanAllah, he gives them that option to teach people how to read to go free. So he's putting things in accordance with who they are. Who do you think had the highest ransom? Al-Walid. Why? Because his dad is the guy His dad's the richest man in Mecca. So his ransom is 4,000 dinars. That's a huge amount of money at the time. So he's by far the most expensive prisoner to free. Khalid radiallahu ta'ala anhu, really when the Prophet was starting his da'wah in Mecca, he's one of the youth, he's kind of aloof to this whole thing. And that is the best way to describe him, and that's a mindset, a psychology, when you go back and you read history, that some people were not necessarily like charged, maybe it's their status, maybe it's just their interest, he was kind of aloof, he wasn't someone that was really fighting the Prophet like his father was. So he doesn't have too much beef with the Prophet but he's focused on his military genius. He comes to Medina alongside Ikrama ibn Abi Jahl and he basically brings the 4,000 dinars to free his brother. So his meeting with the Prophet in Medina is to give him the money. He's treated with respect. So just to let you know, I mean, he did enter into Medina, paid for his brother's ransom, took Al-Walid ibn Al-Walid from him, right? Al-Walid ibn Al-Walid who of course fought against the Prophet and then they left Medina. Now they camp out at Dhul Hulayfa. How many of you have been to Umrah or Hajj in here? Most of you, inshallah ta'ala. Some of you just don't want to raise your hand, I understand. But Dhul Hulayfa is where the miqat is, right? It's where the, the station is where you make your intention for Umrah. So he takes his brother to Dhul Hulayfa. That night they go to sleep. He wakes up in the morning and his brother leaves him a letter. The letter is, by the way, I've become Muslim and I went back to Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi in Medina. So it's like, wait a minute, you made me come all the way from Mecca, put myself in danger to free you from the captivity of the Prophet that huge amount of money to bring you out, all so that I could just take a few miles out of Medina, and then you go back to the Prophet and he leaves in that letter, and Khalid was very close to Al-Walid. Al-Walid and Khalid were, were Al-Walid ibn Al-Walid and Khalid ibn Al-Walid were close brothers. And in fact, subhanAllah, they're gonna maintain communication throughout the years, even as Walid is a Muslim, and Khalid's trying to kill the Muslims. There's letters that go between them uh, throughout and communication that remains. Al-Walid radiallahu ta'ala anhu says to Khalid, inni ra'aytu min akhlaq al-Muslimin wa akhlaq rasulihim sallallahu alayhi wa sallam ma lam adidahu inda Quraysh. Look, I saw from the character of the Muslims and the character of their Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam what I have never seen from Quraysh. And I wanted to embrace Islam as I saw their, their character. You see, subhanAllah, the way the Muslims treated their prisoners was enough to win the heart of Al-Walid ibn Walid. But he said, this is a proud people. He said, I didn't want to embrace Islam in my chain so that they would say he only embraced Islam to get himself out of captivity. I wanted to come back and embrace Islam as a free man. So he didn't wait to go back to Mecca. Al-Walid ibn Al-Walid radiallahu ta'ala anhu. And subhanAllah just shows you the edge of these people because he's going to be doing da'wah to Khalid for the next decade until Khalid embraces Islam. Al-Walid bin Walid wanted to come to the Prophet as a free man. 
And so imagine the joy of the Prophet when Al-Walid ibn Al-Walid comes back to Medina right after, the night after being freed and says, Ashhadu an la ilaha illa wa ashhadu anna Muhammadan Rasulullah. The Prophet was so happy with his Islam. And by the way, the Prophet loved Al-Walid ibn Al-Walid. And there is one narration, subhanAllah, that when Al-Walid ibn Walid passed away, because he died in the time of the Prophet that Umm Salama radiallahu ta'ala anha, who's from that tribe, she asked the Prophet Ya Rasulullah, abki alayhi. Can I cry over him? Like she's holding back her tears and they're trying to understand the rulings of Islam. Am I allowed to shed tears over that? And the Prophet says, go ahead, abki alayhi. Go ahead and cry over him. So she said, Ya Ainu fabki lil walid ibn al walid ibn al mughira mithlu al walid ibn al walid abi al walid kafal ashira. You know, oh, I cry over al walid ibn al walid and suffice it from a people to have amongst them a man like al walid ibn al walid. Abu al-Walid, because he had a son named Al-Walid ibn Al-Walid ibn Al-Walid. Who the Prophet ﷺ, by the way, changed his name to Abdullah because that's too many Walids in the chain. So the Prophet ﷺ changed his son's name to Abdullah ibn Al-Walid ibn Al-Walid. But this was the nobility of this man in the life of the Prophet ﷺ. And this is the man who's going to start doing da'wah to his brother, calling his brother to Al-Islam. Then comes Uhud. Uhud is going to be the first time that Khalid radiallahu ta'ala anhu brings his military genius as a strategist against the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam and where unfortunately Khalid radiallahu ta'ala anhu will make his name amongst the Meccans carrying out the most devastating tragedy against the Muslims in one shot right is this battle of Uhud so Abu Sufyan is the one who's commanding the army and he divides the two sides of the army between Ikrama ibn Abi Jahl and Khalid ibn Walid. Ikrama and Khalid are cousins. Remember, they're both from Banu Makhzum, right? And they're both very skilled in battle. Ikrama has a bone to pick with the Muslims because his father is Abu Jahl, right? So Ikrama in particular really hates the Prophet really hates the Muslims. Khalid has a bone to pick with the Muslims, but he's really interested in carrying out his brilliance and showing it on the battlefield. So in Uhud, Abu Sufyan commands the center. He puts Ikrama in charge of the right flank and he puts Khalid in charge of the left flank. The left flank naturally aligns with Jabal al-Rumah. Okay, Jabal al-Rumah, which is the famous mountain of the archers. So Khalid radiallahu anhu is coming in from this side and he's got his eyes on the mountain of the archers where there are 50 archers that the Prophet ﷺ commands to be on that mountain to watch the backs of the Muslims in Uhud. So Khalid anhu, he takes the left side and obviously the battle of Uhud ensues. And in the battle of Uhud, we know the famous story that the Prophet ﷺ commanded the archers not to come down from the mountain even if they think the battle is over. The Muslims won the initial battle the Prophet said, do not come down until I tell you to come down. Forty of them saw that it seemed like it's over. Now they're just collecting the spoils. I mean, there are a lot of shields, a lot of horses, a lot to be collected from the spoils of war. Forty of the fifty run down. Khalid radiallahu ta'ala anhu is watching from the other side this all happening. And so Khalid radiallahu ta'ala anhu comes up with the strategy which was to make it seem like we are retreating, but to circle around and to attack from the back because now the main protection of the Muslims was gone, which was the archers. Khalid himself goes and he takes out the 10 archers that are remaining. 
And he says, He glorifies Hubal and he says, Take it from me and I am Abu Sulaiman. His name was Abu Sulaiman because his oldest son was Sulaiman ibn Khalid. So Khalid takes out the remaining 10 archers and basically ambushes the Muslims from behind. And this, of course, was the first time that the Muslims had experienced tragedy at that level. And Khalid comes home to Mecca to a hero's welcome because ultimately it was his strategy that won the Battle of Uhud for the Meccans. And keep in mind that the Prophet was saying what in the Battle of Uhud? Oh Allah, forgive my people, they don't know any better. So if it wasn't for Khalid taking that position, I just want you to once again understand the, the journey of redemption of a human being. Abu Sufyan and Ikramah were shaken by the initial skirmish. They were ready to retreat. Khalid was the one who planned this counterattack and that won the battle for the Meccans. So this is the first battle of Khalid against the Muslims, and he's a hero. Next comes the Battle of Khandaq, the Battle of the Trench. Now what the Muslims had done in the Battle of the Trench, building that trench around Medina, it really is a bulletproof strategy so long as they don't give up any part of the trench. Khalid was given the, subhanAllah, when you think about like history, he was given the assignment of assassinating the Prophet He's actually the most skilled assassin, the most skilled general. His job is to go and to kill the Prophet Khalid is an expert in diversion tactics. And we're going to see this throughout the, the life of Khalid his military genius, especially next week, that Khalid was able to create images and to create alertness in different parts of the battlefield, even in the way that he uses the animals, subhanAllah, even in training horses to act in a certain way at certain times so that he can divert your attention as the opposing army so that you don't know which point to attack. Khalid is an expert at that and that is the way that he's going to win many of the battles for the Muslims in the future, right, is diversion tactics. So Khalid is the one who actually creates enough diversions at some point on the Khandaq to penetrate and to cause somewhat of a lapse in Khandaq. But at the end of the day, we know that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala sent the powerful winds and turned the Meccans back to, uh, from Khandaq. Then comes Hudaybiyah. Hudaybiyah, uh, the Prophet of course, is coming to make Umrah from Medina peacefully with the Muslims. Khalid anhu was given the instruction of blocking the way of the Prophet from Mecca. And the Prophet basically uses Khalid's tactic on him, which is that the Prophet sends a smaller group on the traditional route while he takes the Muslims on another route, on a side route all the way to Hudaybiyah, which is only, by the way, about 10 miles away from Mecca. So Khalid anhu was outsmarted by the Prophet with his own type of tactic. And this was actually to Khalid anhu a sign not just of the Prophet's genius, a sign of the Prophet being a messenger of Allah. So Khalid anhu was watching Hudaybiyah. Obviously, the Treaty of Hudaybiyah is settled. The Muslims will return back and they will come for Umratul Qada, they will come for the makeup Umrah the next year on the condition that they're not going to be harmed in exchange for other things and we're not going to go through the treaty of Hudaybiyah again. Khalid radiallahu anhu throughout this time 
He basically says that I was considering Islam multiple times. So his brother stays in communication with him. And Khalid's an intelligent man. He knows something is special about the Prophet ﷺ, but he speaks through a series of incidents that ends up happening that really convinces him. For one, he talks about watching the Prophet ﷺ and Dhuhr and, and, and Asr during that trip. And he witnesses them in Salatul Khawf, the prayer of fear. The prayer of fear allows for the Muslims to pray in a very unique way, right? One group does uh, Qiyam, another group comes in and stands up, one group does Rukur and then they leave and they guard the ranks, another group comes in and does Rukur. Facing the Qibla is not necessary. The Imam prays in the middle of the ranks, not in the front of them. I mean, there's all sorts of things that happen in Salatul Khawf. May Allah protect us from ever being in a situation where we need to do that. But it's a, it is a prayer that basically allows for the Muslims to be smart during battle while still fulfilling their obligations. The beauty of it is that it shows that you can't give up your prayer even in that situation, even in battle. Even when you're afraid that there's an enemy that's going to attack you. So Khalid radiallahu ta'ala anhu is watching and he said, I thought, I just thought to myself, you know, what if I just take them out during salah? So he said, I watched them pray dhuhr and then I waited for them for asr. And he described the Prophet praying in the middle and then all of these different things that are happening. And he says, فَوَقَعَ فِي قَلْبِ أَنَّ هَذَا النَّبِيُّ جَاءَ بِالْحَقِّ He said, just, it, it really occurred to me at that point, for whatever reason, said, this man has some truth that came to him. Why? Because the religion takes into consideration things that I've never seen before. So it's further convincing him of the intelligence of the deen of al-Islam. Then he now takes the story himself. He says, When Allah wanted from me what He wanted from me of good, He said, Allah put in my heart suddenly a love of Islam. This is a new feeling that I have. Suddenly I had a love of Islam. Couldn't explain it. That landed in my heart. And I found guidance coming to me. And he said, I said to myself, Every single one of these situations you've witnessed of the Prophet and every single time Allah made a way out for him, the man is divinely protected. I know that he's divinely protected, otherwise I would have got to him. So he said, in my heart, I knew something was there. He said, and while I was thinking that, كَتَبَ إِلَيَّ أَخِي my brother wrote me a letter, Al-Walid. Al-Walid says to him, لَمْ أَرَى أَعْجَمَ مِنْ ذِهَابِ رَأْيِكَ عَنِ الْإِسْلَامِ وَعَقْلُهُ عَقْلُكَ Al-Walid says, there is nothing in the world that perplexes me more than you're not embracing Islam and you have the brain that you have. You're too smart to not recognize this is the truth. And he says, وَقَدْ سَأَلَنِي رَسُولُ اللَّهِ صَلَى اللَّهُ عَلَيْهِ وَسَلَمْ عَنْكَ And by the way, Khalid, the Prophet asked me about you. And the Prophet came to me and said, Aina Khalid, where is Khalid? And I said to the Prophet يَأْتِ اللَّهُ بِهِ Allah will bring him to us. And the Prophet responded and he said, a man like Khalid is too smart to not become Muslim. So Al-Walid is telling Khalid about this conversation he had with the Prophet that the Prophet said, you're too smart not to be Muslim. And Khalid is saying that this is corresponding to Islam suddenly being in my heart and the sudden newfound love that I have with the deen. So he said, 
that my brother said to me, Think, O oh my brother, about all the good you've missed out on. And I expect to see you here in the ranks of the Muslims. That's one more thing. Khalid says, This increased me in my desire to be Muslim. By the way, we're going to go a little bit later tonight, inshallah ta'ala, so I apologize to all of those that are coming. Uh, for Salat al-Isha. He says, Zadani raghbatan fil Islam. He said that that made me want Islam even more. And I was pleased that the Prophet asked about me, like, wait a minute, like the Prophet is not vengeful towards me, he's not vindictive towards me. The Prophet actually wants me to become Muslim, he cares about me, right? I have a chance. This is coming from a man who's the son of his dad, who's basically giving hit, hit jobs on his deathbed. Like, I have a chance. Then remember the story of Maymuna bint al Harith. The Prophet married her in accordance with his coming into Mecca. And Rasulullah used this as a way by which he could soften the hearts of the tribe and bring them to the wedding. The Prophet invited the non Muslim relatives to the wedding, to the feast. He's trying to show a connection. Khalid is the nephew of Maymuna, and this further softens his heart. Then he said, I had a dream. So he sees the wedding of Maymuna. Khalid's heart is completely now overwhelmed by Islam. Khalid says, I had a dream. Said, I saw in a dream as if I am in this tight land, this constricted land. It was dry and barren and it looked miserable. He says, He said, So I went to this expansive green meadow. So in my dream, I exit out of a dry, desolate, barren place, tiny place, and I go to this wide, beautiful garden. And he said later on, he said, I woke up and I said, This is a ru'ya, this is not just a dream. I know what dreams are. This is not just a dream, this is a vision. And he said, I asked Abu Bakr anhu later on, and Abu Bakr anhu said, Huwa makhrajuka alladhi hadaka Allahu fihi ila al-Islam, huwa shirk That Abu Bakr said to me that this was Allah taking you from disbelief to Islam, the constricted place, that was your shirk, that was your polytheism. So like that was the last dream I had. So Khalid said, so now I kind of wanted to float the idea with some of my friends about possibly becoming Muslim. So I went to Sufyan ibn Umayyah. I'm sorry, Safwan ibn Umayyah. Safwan ibn Umayyah. And Safwan ibn Umayyah, as I said, Khalid's related to everybody, and he has a lot of brothers and sisters. Safwan ibn Umayyah is not just the son of the famous Umayyah, uh, who was killed by Bilal anhu after he tortured him. Safwan is also his brother-in-law. He's married to a sister of Khalid named Najia. So he said, I told Safwan, you know, I'm thinking about becoming Muslim. We know that he's on the truth. We know that Muhammad has the truth. Why don't we go and embrace Islam? Safwan stood up and he swore by Allahul Uzza, he swore by the idols. He said, if all of Quraysh embraced Islam except for one man, I'd be the one man who doesn't embrace Islam. By the way, Safwan embraced Islam later on. But he said, if everybody in Quraysh embraced Islam, I'll be that one guy that doesn't embrace Islam. He said, he killed my, my father, he killed my brother. These are people, by the way, who were responsible for Raji' as well, the massacre of Raji'. So he said, okay, I left Safwan ibn Umayyah alone. And he said, I kind of made an excuse for him. I said, look, he lost his father, he lost his brother. It was a little too personal for him. He wasn't ready yet. So then I went to Ikram ibn Abi Jahl. Ikram was his best friend. 
and Ikrama is his cousin, and Ikrama also is the son-in-law of his sister, Fatima bint al-Walid. They're all related, right? So his sister is Ikrama's mother-in-law, he's his cousin, he's his best friend. He says, Ikrama, we know that Muhammad has some truth. We all know it. What are we waiting for? Ikrama says, you want me to follow a man who killed my father, Abu Jahl? You want me to follow a man who killed my father? Absolutely not. No way. And he says, I told myself, you know, I, I can't really blame him too much because at the end of the day, he lost his dad, it's still personal to him. I left him alone. Now Ikrama goes and he talks to Abu Sufyan. Abu Sufyan is now the last of sort of the elders in this, in this entire space. And the rumors start to spread that our prized military general is asking, what do you think if we become Muslim? So Abu Sufyan, basically, at the, at the request of Ikrama, or at the rumor come from Ikrama, he goes to Khalid with a group of the elders of Quraysh. And Abu Sufyan says, Oh Khalid, I'm hearing that you're considering Islam. Is that true? Khalid says, yeah, it's true. Abu Sufyan was expecting him to lie and hide it. Khalid is not afraid of anybody. I mean, everybody around him, these people kill Muslims for a living. He said, yeah, it's true. What are you going to do about it, right? So it gets rough. Abu Sufyan draws a sword. They start, they start to basically get a little bit testy. Ikrama, who started the whole problem in the first place, he stands next to Khalid and he says, Khalid has a right to become Muslim if he wants to. If he wants to become Muslim, I'll become Muslim with him. And he ends the entire skirmish. Why? Because Abu Sufyan is not from Banu Makhzum. At the end of the day, Ikrama and Khalid are Makhzumi. You're from Banu Umayyah, know your lane, get out of here. So Ikrama, who started the skirmish, kind of ends it because he doesn't want Khalid to be killed. He said, I didn't bring you here to kill the man. I brought you here to talk him out of it. And you people escalated this too quickly. Khalid anhu that night, he says, you know what? That's everything I needed to see to basically make my last determination to become Muslim. Khalas, I'm done with these people. Allah put it in my heart. He felt alienated from his own people. Ikrama's like, come on, like, please stop this. Don't you see what's happening? Khalid is like, move on. So Khalid says that I gathered my stuff and I went out at night to go meet the Prophet in Medina. And he said, and I thought to myself, I'd really love to not be alone in this. He said, SubhanAllah, I found Uthman ibn Talha. Remember the woman that wanted to uh, drink out of the, the skull of Asim bin Thabit? That's her son. And I bumped into Uthman ibn Talha. And I'm not afraid of anybody. I told him exactly what I was going to do. And he responded and he said, you know what, I'm going to do the same thing. I'm actually on my way to Medina to embrace Islam. So Khalid says, so I said, Alhamdulillah, I got a, I've got a companion now. So Khalid and Uthman ibn Talha said, you know, we, we made our way to Al-Madina. And he said, once we got to the outskirts of Mecca, he said, we bump into Amr ibn al-As. And Amr ibn al-As says, marhaban bil qawm. Welcome to, the, to, to, to my brothers. Welcome to these people. They said, Wabik, and you as well. He said, Aina masirukum, where are you all going? And they said, We're going. Nuridu Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. We're going because we want to meet the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. Amr ibn As says, You know what? I'm going to do the same thing. Amr has a story which we're going to talk about, by the way. He went back to Abyssinia. It's another journey for him altogether. But now, subhanAllah. Remember the du'a of the Prophet ﷺ with the blood running down his face in Uhud? Now, these three men, Khalid, Amr ibn As, and Uthman ibn Talha, 
are making their way to Medina, not under any pressure to embrace Islam. And so Khalid anhu says that we entered into Medina. Can you imagine being in Medina and you just look up and you see Khalid, Amr al-As, and Uthman ibn Talha just walking in casually into Medina like, what are you doing here? Right? But subhanAllah, they clearly came with different intentions. And he said, we walked to the Prophet and he says it was the first day of Safar on the eighth year after Hijrah. He says, when I looked at the Prophet I gave salam to him, recognizing his prophethood. Assalamu alaikum ya Rasulullah. Think about the Prophet here in Khalid and Walid radiallahu anhu now saying, Assalamu alaikum ya Rasulullah. So he says, The Prophet responded to me with a big smile on his face. And the Prophet said, Quraysh has given us its insides. I mean, at this point now, what's left? Like, who's here? Khalid, Amr al-As, and Uthman ibn Talha. And he said, I said to the Prophet Astaghfir ya Rasulullah. Seek forgiveness for me, O Messenger of Allah. Everything I did, min saddin an sabirillah. Everything I did to prevent people from the path of Allah. Ya Rasulullah, ask Allah to forgive me. And the Prophet Embraces Khalid radiallahu anhu says, Inna al-Islam yajubu ma qabla O Khalid, Islam does away with everything before it. Thumma astaghfara lahu alayhi salatu wasalam. And then the Prophet said, O Allah, forgive Khalid. Thumma taqaddama Amr ibn As wa Uthman ibn Talha fa aslama. And then Amr ibn As and Uthman ibn Talha all became Muslim. And he said, Wallahi, from that day, the Prophet never gave anyone preference to me. It was like, it was like bygones were bygones. Like the Prophet loved me as if I was his companion forever. SubhanAllah. Like as if Uhud never happened. As if no enmity ever happened between us and the Messenger. Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. Now I want to mention something here that's very important. These three men, Khalid ibn Walid, Amr ibn As, and Uthman ibn Talha, are considered by many scholars to be the last three people who have the status of the Muhajireen now. Why? Because the Prophet said, La hijrata ba'dal fatah. There is no more migration, meaning you don't get the status of being from the Muhajirun after Fatih Mecca. There's a decreased status there at that point. But these three men came to the Prophet before Fatih Mecca, before the Prophet marched back on Mecca on their own volition. So there was that ikhlas, that raghbah, that desire to be with the Prophet, and they earn the last three spots of the status of being muhajireen. Now subhanAllah, how does he become the sword of Allah? And I'll end with this inshaAllah ta'ala with just a few more things and then we'll inshaAllah call a night and we'll continue next week. Khalid radiallahu anhu knows one thing and one thing only. War, <laughs> battle. So he's like, Ya Rasulullah, put me to work. I'm ready to go. Like I don't need training. I'm... Khalid is not the person who's gonna sit in the masjid now and memorize the Quran. He's not the person who's going to go learn a hadith from Abu Darda and Abu Musa and, 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 and you know, Abu Sa'id. No, no. He's ready to go to war. The Battle of Mu'tah happens less than two weeks after that. The Prophet sends out 3,000 companions to go and to fight on the outskirts now of where Jordan is. And you know, we actually have a documentary which you can watch about the Battle of Mu'tah. You can search it on our channel, inshallah, The Martyrs of Mu'tah because I actually filmed there on site, thousands of miles away where they have killed an ambassador of the Muslims and they are now going to engage the Roman Empire 
with 3,000 people, Khalid goes out as a foot soldier, not as a general. He's like, Ya Rasulullah, put me to work. I'm ready to go. I don't need any training. I don't need anything to delay this. Khalid radiallahu anhu was sent out to the Battle of Mu'tah, and the commander of that army was Zayd ibn al-Haritha radiallahu ta'ala anhu. And the Prophet gave the order that Zayd radiallahu anhu is the first commander. If Zayd is killed, then Ja'far radiallahu ta'ala anhu takes the banner. If Ja'far is killed, Abdullah ibn Rawaha takes the banner. And if those three are killed, then give the banner, give the leadership to someone that you choose amongst you. The Prophet is standing on the minbar in Medina and he's watching the Battle of Mu'tah happen through divine revelation thousands of miles away. And this battle turned out to be 3,000 against up to 100, 150,000 Roman soldiers and their allies. You talk about being outnumbered. And the Prophet sees Zayd anhu fall in the battlefield. His son, alayhi salatu wasalam, right? And the Prophet says, Qutila Zayd. His voice is quivering. And he said, Ja'far just took the banner. And he said, Ja'far has been killed. And Abdullah ibn Rawaha just took the banner. Abdullah ibn Rawaha has been killed. And the Prophet is weeping as he's seeing three of his most beloved companions pass away. His family pass away, three of his most beloved companions. What ends up happening next is that the Muslims are looking around and Thabit ibn Arqam, one of the seniors of the Ansar, he picked up the banner and he starts to call the people towards him and then he goes up to Khalid ibn al-Walid. Think about your Khalid, you just became Muslim like a few weeks ago. Your whole life is being an enemy to the Muslims. You've killed some of these people's parents and siblings. Right? There's obviously going to be a level of warming up that has to be here, right? And Khalid understands that and he's mukhlis, he's sincere for the sake of Allah. He's just there to support. And Thabit goes up to him and he tells him, Abba Sulaiman, take the banner. Khalid radiallahu anhu says, no, la akhudhu, anta ahakku bihi. You have greater right to it. I'm not going to take it. He says, you have so many more years in front of me in Islam. You, you're one of the people of Badr, like there is no reason why I, Khalid, the new convert, should take the banner. So Thabit says, take it, ayyuhar rajul, take it, take the banner. And Khalid is hesitant, not because he's afraid of the battle, but because he knows the feelings and the sentiments of the Muslims. I'm the new guy here. And Thabit says to the rest of the Ansar, to the rest of the people there, are you all gathered upon Khalid? And they say yes, unanimously. So subhanAllah, he takes the banner of the Muslims in this consequential battle. And then Khalid radiallahu anhu goes to work. What does he do? Khalid radiallahu anhu creates a strategy because his entire, he has a brain that far surpasses the strategies of using his sword. Khalid attaches something to the animals. He creates a diversion tactic to where the Romans anticipate from different directions that the Muslim army is 10 or 15 times greater than its size. And so they go and they start to attack basically ghost armies. So Khalid devises in real time an entire strategy to spread his 3,000 men out into different places and attack at different times of the day. So the Romans are perplexed. We're fighting desert Arabs here. We don't expect this. They're perplexed. And Khalid radiallahu anhu plunges through the Byzantines. Khalid radiallahu anhu broke nine swords. He broke nine swords and pulled out his tenth and basically cut through the heart of that army and then gathered the Muslims out and then took them back to Medina in safety.
And the Prophet ﷺ, as he is speaking from the manbar and seeing what is happening, he says, أَخَذَ خَارِدُ الرَّايَةِ وَهُوَ سَيْفٌ مِنْ سُيُوفِ اللَّهِ Said Khalid just took the banner. And Khalid is a sword of the swords of Allah. So it was the first time the Prophet ﷺ called him Sayfullah al-Maslul, the unsheathed sword of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And the Muslims come back and Khalid radiallahu anhu is now the hero of Medina. He's the hero of the Muslims. Imagine his mindset, subhanAllah, in this regard. And I want to end, subhanAllah, on this note with two different things. The man does not go into the recitation of the Qur'an. The man does not go into the memorization. He immediately is thinking about how he can now use what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gave him to benefit the Muslims. And in fact, Umar radiallahu ta'ala anhu narrates, or it's narrated that Umar radiallahu anhu mentioned that three people were withholding some of what they possessed. Ibn Jamil, Khalid ibn Walid, and Abbas ibn Abdul Muttalib. And the Prophet sallallahu responded to Umar radiallahu ta'ala anhu, and he says, that as for Khalid ibn al-Walid, فَإِنَّكُمْ تَظْلِمُونَ خَالِدًا He said, you're actually wronging him. He said, everything that Khalid radiallahu ta'ala anhu احتبسة, everything that he's holding back, he's basically making weapons with it. He's preparing himself for battle. Khalid is in total, you know, battle mindset. <laughs> so Khalid does not withhold anything for the sake of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. The man is not his father. He's not thinking that way. He's thinking how he can continue to support the mission that was now given to him from the Prophet and you only have like a handful of ahadith that are narrated from Khalid One of them, Ibn Abbas says that he was eating in the house of my aunt Maymuna bint al-Harith, remember? His aunt now. So he was eating in the house of Maymuna with the Prophet and they brought uh, what was known as uh, a dhab. Dhab is a desert lizard. Now lizards, you think of the little tiny ones in Texas. It's actually, think about like a crocodile style, big old desert lizard. It's different. It's like a full animal. Um, and Khalid radiallahu anhu sees it. And Khalid doesn't know anything. So he noticed the Prophet does not eat from it. So the Prophet is asked by Khalid, a haram al-dhab, ya Rasulullah, can I not eat from this? And the Prophet said, no, it's not haram. I just don't like it. So Khalid radiallahu anhu says, so I ate it. That's his hadith. That's what you get from Khalid in terms of a hadith. You're not getting other than that. Other than that, you have the greatest general in the history of Islam after the Prophet and you have to stick with that. But I want to end with this from Sayyidullah and then we'll continue next week, inshallah. Can you imagine how difficult it was for him to read all of the verses in the Qur'an about his father? You talk about hard on the heart, how difficult it is, how many verses in the Qur'an are about his father? This was tough. Now Khalid by the way, only memorized like a few surahs of the Qur'an until his death. He actually mentions that on his deathbed. He didn't have time, he was focused 100% on battle and strategy. Would lead over 50 campaigns for the Muslims in four years. He knows what he's doing. But Khalid goes to Salim Mawla Abi Hudayfa. It's one of the most painful conversations you'll see here in this regard. And he says to Salim, Salim is of course a famous reciter of the Qur'an. The Prophet ﷺ mentioned from Khudr Qur'an, Man Arba'a, take the Qur'an from four people. He mentioned Salim as one of them. And he goes to Salim and he says, Ya Salim, afil Qur'ani matrukun? Is anything of the Qur'an left off? Like, how does this work? Salim knows what he's about to ask him. Like, do I have to recite the verses about my dad? Do I have to know these? I don't know much of the Qur'an. 
Salim radiallahu anhu knows where he's going with this and Khalid insists, he says, recite to me the verses about my father so I can repeat them. Why does he want to repeat them? SubhanAllah, look how, look how dedicated he is to Islam. He's saying, I will not have Iman. Like my faith is not going to be complete unless I can do this, so repeat them to me or say them to me and I will repeat them. And he repeats those verses from Surah Al-Muddathir until Sa'uslihi Saqar. I will punish him. SubhanAllah. Khalid radiallahu ta'ala anhu has to do this with a quivering voice, but it's tough on him. He dedicates his life to helping and supporting the Prophet ﷺ and his father was dedicated to fighting the Prophet ﷺ. But his ikhlas, his sincerity عنه, is going to show for the next few years in a way that is as beautiful as the strategies and the campaigns that he would devise to bring the two empires of the day to their knees. And this is how he becomes Sayyidullah the sword of Allah, may Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala be pleased with Khalid radiallahu ta'ala anhu for all of his sacrifices for al-Islam. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala reward all of the companions of the Messenger alayhi salatu wasalam. Send his peace and blessings upon our Messenger alayhi salatu wasalam and his family. Allahumma ameen. Aquluka lihada. Wa astaghfirullah yurakum risa'al muslimin. Fastaghfiru innahu al-ghafur rahim. Inshallah ta'ala next week we will continue with the story of Khalid. Wa sallallahu wa sallam barak on Nabina Muhammad wa ala alihi wa sahbihi ajma'in. Wassalamu alaykum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.